0: You hear that sound, Tim? That was the sound of a thousand court reporters unsubscribing from our podcast.
1: Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis.
2: Hey everyone, I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal, California Department of Podcasting, license number 254709ER. In each episode of the California Appellate Law Podcast, we provide trial attorneys with legal analysis and practice tips from an appellate perspective. Both of us are appellate specialists who split our practices evenly between trial and appellate courts. We both work directly with trial attorneys to prepare cases for, for appeal. And in this podcast, we offer some of that appellate perspective on various issues that arise in the trial courts and in the appellate courts.
0: To episode 23 of the podcast.
2: 23. And uh, Jeff, in the last several episodes, we've had uh, guests join us. We've had rousing conversations, but they've they've ran a little bit long and we haven't been able to discuss some, uh, some recent interesting cases. So we thought we'd compile some of those, some of those uh, more interesting cases and share them with our listeners today.
0: Yeah. And the first case uh, we want to talk about today comes out of the second district and represents an extreme enforcement of the procedural rule requiring that a party support every argument in a legal brief with a citation to legal authority. In Singman versus imdb.com, an attorney represented himself in a lawsuit he filed against the website imdb.com, and that's an internet database tracking, an internet database that tracks movies and actor information. Now, The opinion is very short. You wouldn't know many details from the opinion because of how short it is, but I did some digging uh, on the online dockets and found out that IMDB.com responded to Singman's lawsuit with an anti-slap motion, which was granted, and Singman, representing himself, appealed. And in a very short opinion, the 2nd District affirmed by noting that Singman's table of authorities included only a citation to the statute that authorizes an appeal from a judgment. And no other legal authorities. And the Court of Appeal invoked the rule that appellants have the burden of demonstrating error. The trial court of excuse me, the Court of Appeal affirmed the order. This seems like the right result, but very extreme to me. And it's in a published decision. And in my experience, impro par improper parties are given extreme latitude by the courts, but this improper who was an attorney was not. What did you think about this decision, Tim?
2: Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Jeff, and and you're not lying that you wouldn't get that information that you that you told you wouldn't even know that this is an anti-slat case. The the opinion I think was uh, was less than two pages long didn't give a hint as to what the case was about, no facts, no indication what the uh, what the appellant's legal arguments were. The court just said that well, there's no authority offered for those legal arguments. They they could have been righteous arguments. They could have been self-evident arguments, but because they were not supported by citations to authority, it was it was summarily the the, the judgment was summarily affirmed. Essentially, it was. I I thought it was it's potentially a dangerous opinion because it is published, as you mentioned, and there's no context given. So your so litigants are left with this published opinion that can be cited, and I think will be cited anytime there is a even a self-evident proposition in a legal brief that does not, is not accompanied by a legal citation, hey, it needs to be ignored and, and deemed forfeited under the Singman published decision.
0: Yep, I'll be adding this uh, case to my list of uh, authorities to cite for that proposition.
2: Yeah, your mischievous authorities, and, and also on on the point that it's a published opinion, I don't see that it meets any of the criteria for publication. It's not a it's not a new rule, other than you know maybe my cynical taking it to uh, to further extremes. I don't know that the court intended it to take it to that extreme. It didn't offer any any elaboration on on uh, that point. But yeah, I I thought it was strange that it was published. I'm not sure what the court was intending to signal by publishing it.
0: Yes, as a caution to our listeners, be sure to cite more than one case or one legal authority in in a brief going forward to avoid this result.
2: Right. And Jeff, you also shared uh, a, a similar case with me a couple of weeks ago, and I had, I, I wrote that up on my uh, blog. The case is Center Street Development Company versus Superior. It's from November 2021. It's uh, the decision summarily affirmed a summary judgment, but it also but it gave no reasons. I had to pay a fee to download some of the briefing from the Superior Court's website just to know what the case was about. It was it turns out it's a real estate dispute involving some 2,700 acres on the Mendocino-Sonoma County line just off of Highway 101. Several heirs held an interest in that property, and one of the heirs Robert had sold a fractional interest in his capacity as beneficiary of a trust, and, and the, the transferee moved for summary adjudication to quiet title to the transfer. The trial court denied summary adjudication, finding that the transfers of the other fractional interests were invalid because Robert never actually acquired an in- interest from the estate and because Robert was barred from transferring under the trust spendthrift provision. So, with all that, the, the Court of Appeal thought it was obvious that and I, and I quote obvious that the trial court was wrong well i got confused just reading off my summary about what happened i didn't think anything was obvious but it's it's safe to say that the trial judge did not think that she was obviously wrong either uh, and it's clear that the, the the defendant did not think the judge was obviously wrong so I think that the owed it to, to to everybody really to offer some reasons for its analysis, and I think the California Constitution agrees. Article six, section fourteen of the of our state constitution provides that decisions of the Supreme Court and courts of appeal that determine causes shall be in writing with reasons stated. And I don't think the opinion in Center Street conforms to this standard. If the court missed yeah,
0: another another extreme extreme outcome, yeah. Uh- We have spoken over the past year about the perils of using the judicial counsel form for filing notices of appeal. My office tends to use pleading paper entitled notice of appeal, but there's a judicial counsel form that gives you check boxes indicating which part of the judgment or which order you are appealing. And here's an example of another case where an appellant almost lost their right to appeal because they checked the wrong box on the form. The case is Alex and Annie LLC versus Warren, It arises from the 4th Appellate District Division One, And the case involved an appeal of a sanctions award. The appeal was brought by the Mark Garrigan's law firm. And the appeal was fraught with problems, including the fact there was an attempt to appeal a sanctions order by the wrong party, and the uh, sanctions order was not opposed in writing at the trial level. But what I want to focus on is that the appellant in this matter filed the Notice of Appeal using the Judicial Council form, checked the wrong box regarding the type of order that was being appealed from... And failed to identify the proper party. And the Court of Appeal kind of was forgiving, I guess was in a forgiving mood, and exercised its discretion to liberally construe the notice of appeal by referring to the civil case information statement filed weeks later to save the appeal. I don't think parties should count on courts doing so in other cases. And this case represents another good example or good reminder that using the judicial counsel forms can create unnecessary problems.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that litigants should count on that. But I I think I have seen a little bit of a trend of of courts being more lenient on this kind of issue. I had a case where almost the exact same fact happened. I was on I was the respondent and I moved to dismiss on that basis that the uh, the attorney, I think in that case, the attorney had a sanctions award against him. And he uh, he filed his notice of appeal. But as the attorney on behalf of his client, the client didn't have a sanctions award against her. And we got the appeal dismissed on that ground i think under I think this court obviously would have would have reached and found a way to save the appeal. so I don't know but i I, I agree with your point. I don't think that litigants should uh, should count on the mercy of the court of appeal to save their appeal. so i had uh, I found this other this other recent case uh, very interesting. it's about. Whether you should bring a court reporter to a hearing, even if it's not a dispositive hearing, it's just a law and motion hearing, and uh, and there's not going to be any testimony offered. And I got to thinking that <clears throat> that after after we get Rule eight point eleven fifteen abolished, Jeff, I think we sh- we should leverage the mighty influence of this podcast to fix the court reporter problem in uh, the California state courts. The case is Y Shadow versus Vo. It's um, It's a second district case. It's about whether litigants need to have a court reporter at a law and motion hearing. Two appellate justices wound up disagreeing sharply on the question. So regardless of of what the majority uh, held in this instance, what you should be taking away from this decision is, yes, you do need to have a court reporter even at a mere law and motion hearing where no testimony is offered. So writing for the majority, Justice Bendix, held that the lack of a reporter's transcript at a hearing on a motion to compel arbitration was not fatal to the appeal. The majority opinion is logical. It seems to reach the right result, in my view. But Justice Cheney wrote a, a dissent that raises important issues about whether the majority evaded certain procedural safeguards in order to reach its result. And Justice Cheney's strongest, in my view, is that the procedural rules like supplying a full record must be applied consistently to all litigants in order to afford due process and equal protection. And she wrote, quote, courts tip the scales when they decline to consistently apply those procedural prescriptions, end quote.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I read this case, and I, I tend to uh, favor the dissent by Justice Cheney. Just because there's no court reporter present at the hearing doesn't mean the parties couldn't attempt to procure a settled statement or agreed statement as a stand-in or a replacement for the reporter's transcript. And I know they're a big hassle uh, to get either a settled statement or a agreed statement, but I, I think Justice Cheney had the right approach here
2: but jeff they're they're more than a hassle you don't even have a right to a settled statement or an agreed statement an agreed statement is when you can get your opposing counsel to to basically stipulate to what was said on the record and opposing counsel can simply say nah not going to agree to that and then the judge a, a settled statement is when you get the judge to to settle a statement saying what happened on the record and the judge can just say nah not going to settle that and not uh, not going to order that and uh you know, so so what do you do? You a court reporter uh, is is really the only game in town, and that imposes a huge cost, and it's an access to justice issue. If you if if your case is is already on a on a tight budget, you might not be able to afford uh, to send a court reporter to every single every single law and motion hearing.
0: Yeah, well, you know, maybe a, when a perfect storm arrives, when you have a case where there's no court reporter, it's a dispositive hearing. And opposing counsel won't stipulate to the statement, and trial the trial court won't issue a settled statement. And there's no agreed statement. Maybe in that case, you could bring up the access to justice issue. If the court of appeal were to attempt somehow to apply this procedural rule and say you don't have the record before us, and we're not going to rule on the merits.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's what I would propose. I submit that the legislature and the judiciary maybe have been a bit too cavalier about how difficult. That they've made the uh, procuring the appellate record for litigants. Uh, some years ago, I'm aware that the California legislature implemented a pilot program that made audio recordings of all court proceedings. And those audio reco- uh, recordings could later be made into transcripts. And this is uh, this is the, the methodology that's used in federal courts. And it guarantees the availability of an appellate record in, in every case. The infrastructure is still there in the California Superior Courts, from what I understand. But for whatever, whatever reason, our, our state legislature chose to discontinue the rules that would allow their use. So, so long as that is the case, I can't accept that jurists are being quite on the level when they suggest that the rules about record preparation are set up fairly and reasonably. It's clear, in my view, it's uh, they're clearly not.
0: You hear that sound, Tim? That was a sound of a thousand court reporters unsubscribing from our podcast. (laughs) I suspect the court reporter lobby might have some opinions about your proposal, but I do agree the availability of those audio records. With computer software or court reporters that can tr- can transcribe that audio to uh, a record, it's a much easier process than having to go through the cumbersome agreed statement or settled statement process. I, I endorse your proposal, even if some of our court reporting listeners do not. Well, maybe the court reporters can, can charge a premium
2: for recording those, uh, those audio recordings. <laughs> you can All make right. it up in the back uh, end.
0: N- <laughs> the next... <laughs> The next case I want to talk about involves Purdue Pharma. I want to bring up this case because it involves an appellate opinion that was a really interesting read and the appellate structure for bankruptcy decisions where someone seeks a review of a bankruptcy court decision. You don't go up to a two or a three or a nine judge panel. There's one judge that reviews an order of the bankruptcy court. It's an interesting procedural uh, setup. But anyway, in Purdue Pharma, as many people know, Purdue Pharma made millions and millions of dollars selling OxyContin. And in recent years, Purdue faced civil and criminal cases pertaining to aggressive marketing of its products and um, perhaps liability for the opioid crisis. And the company filed for bankruptcy protection. And last year, it was widely reported that several states and Purdue and the family that owns Purdue, the Sackler family, agreed to a settlement. And the family members had agreed to contribute a fixed sum to the settlement. And in return, the family members received the equivalent of a discharge or immunity from further legal proceedings, even though those family members were not technically parties to the bankruptcy and weren't subject to the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. The settlement was approved over the objection of many creditors, several states objected to the settlement, but nonetheless, it was approved. And all the parties that that objected to the settlement took it up on appeal. To overturn the order approving the settlement, and in bankruptcy court, those appeals are first heard by United States United States District Judge. And in December, the district judge, the district court judge, issued a scathing opinion overturning the appeal. The judge noted that the Sackler family had removed over ten billion in profits from the company over the years. Yet, we're only going to pay a fraction of that part as part of the settlement. And Purdue Pharma uh, has announced it plans to appeal the district court's ruling to the second district, or excuse me, the second circuit. But again, I bring this case up because the the opioid uh, addiction crisis is so widespread, and also because the writing of this appellate decision by uh, district court judge Colleen McMahon was very good. A great read for anyone wanting an understanding of this litigation, the outer boundaries of bankruptcy court authority dealing with parties that are tangentially impacted by bankruptcy. Did you have any thoughts about the case, Tim?
2: No, that's, that's interesting. Just based on your description, I, I like the I like the outcome. there are there are limits to what what the parties can settle and it sounds like the judge was not impressed with uh, with the level of, of fairness that this settlement reached. What did, what did you think of? It? I
0: thought it was the right result, meaning the overturning of the settlement. I also note that um, the parties have been ordered to go to mediation uh, before the second Circuit hears the appeal, and I suspect uh, that if the Sackler family puts in more money that the objecting parties might be satisfied.
2: All right. The next case I want to discuss deals with collateral orders. And there's a there's a a, a split. Uh, There's long been a split, a majority view and a minority view about what constitutes collateral orders. So the case is State of California versus Southern California Edison. Uh, It's out of the fourth district, second division, and uh, it's a non-published decision. Uh, It holds that orders granting a summary, uh, summary, a motion for summary adjudication can be appealable as collateral orders. But just not in this case, because it did not order the payment of money. And that's the, uh, that's the breakdown of the majority and the minority view. Does an order have to have to order the payment of money in, or, in order to be appealable as a collateral order? And the Court of Appeal here says it does have to order the payment of money. But take caution, anytime an order can be appealed, remember that it must be appealed. So that's the downside to, to appealability. It's uh, nice to have orders that are appealable, but you can't sleep on your rights then. It's a very it's very scary when a court says that orders ordinarily assumed to be appealable uh, might be appealable in certain cases, because then then that creates a question mark and you're going to have to have a notice of appeal ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the conclusion. I'll tell you uh, what I found interesting about reading this case is as a Hail Mary argument in the reply brief, the appellant had asked the court that if the court found the order not appealable, well, just treat it as a writ petition. But because the appellant had waited to raise this for the first time in a reply brief and not in its opening brief, the court never reached this issue. It's a good lesson Lesson here is if you're appellate counsel and you harbor any doubts about the appeal, appealability of an order or whether or not your opponent might bring it up in terms of the appealability of the order, don't wait till the reply brief to make that kind of Hail Mary argument uh, be upfront about the concern.
2: Yeah, that's true. Although that that reminds me when uh, the episode when we had Al Yakelson on and uh, and everyone was caught off guard there because everyone thought that the order, the probate order there was appealable. And it turns out the court of appeals said, nah, I don't think this is appealable, but we're going to go. No one raised it, whether it can be reviewed as a repetition, but we're just going to go ahead and review it as a repetition anyway. Sometimes I wonder if a court wants to to review something, it's going to review it. And if it doesn't want to review something, then uh, it won't review it. All right, so so that concludes the, the cases we wanted to discuss today. We did have a little bit of court news uh, and, and news from the legal community, and we'll start with some very sad news. Jeff, you and I saw that that this week, I think it was January 3rd, it was reported that Kelly Yernby passed away. Kelly was a deputy district attorney here in Orange County. She had been a guest on our podcast on episode 16 back in September 2021. She died apparently of complications from covid And uh, my wife and I knew Kelly on a personal level. We're very saddened by that news. Our, Our hearts and sincerest condolences go out to her family. We'll miss
0: you, Kelly. Yeah, you know, I never, uh, I didn't know her personally. I met her for the first time on this podcast, but I found her to be bright and engaging. And it's a real loss for the legal community and the DA's office. And yeah, a real trial. Also, you know, we record this podcast in early January 2022. And with the resurgence of Omicron uh, and COVID, the federal courts in Southern California have announced a suspension of all jury trials in LA, Orange County, and Riverside. And Los Angeles Superior Court is suspending for at least for two weeks criminal trials. So that's going to impact appeals in those uh, courthouses as well.
2: Right. And that's happening in uh, appellate courts, too. It's reported that the the Federal Circuit and the Seventh Circuit are now suspending their in-person oral arguments. And so those are going to be uh, conducted remotely again.
0: Ninth Circuit, too. I think I recall reading that the Ninth Circuit said uh, they're going to jump to remote, although they had planned on having arguments in January. Let's uh, let's end on a humorous light note. On occasion, I do trial work in addition to appellate work, and uh, sometimes emails or text messages can make or save a case. You know, you find that smoking gun email or smoking gun text, and I found a meme on law Twitter that reminded me uh, of this principle about how an entire case can turn on a single text or email And the meme said, the meme that was posted on law Twitter said, dance like no one is watching, but text an email like it will be read in court one day. I think I'm going to add that to my advice (laughs) that I give my clients going forward.
2: Yeah, I like that one.
0: Well, uh, I think that wraps up this episode.
2: All right. So if you have uh, suggestions for future episodes, Please email us. Uh, I, although I am embarrassed to to admit I have lost my password to the calpodcast at gmail.com email account. So for now, to ensure timely responses, I'll get, I'll I'll just put out my personal you know, a, a real address is tkowal at tva law.com. That's t-k-o-w-a-l at tangovictoralphalaw.com and in our upcoming episodes look for more tips on how to lay the groundwork for an appeal when preparing for trial see you next time
1: you have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again.